Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome. My name is Marilyn Shannon, and this is the Breaking Free Show. And thank you so much for joining us today. It's always a pleasure to have you from wherever you are all over the world. Thank you for being here. And as always, we try our very, very best to bring you the greatest shows that we can, tools, strategies, techniques, philosophies, people, personal stories, anything that we can that will help self-educate us so that we are more and more freer, that we can do all the things that we want to do, that we feel empowered and strong, and that we can be the ruler of our own lives, and that's very important. And before we get started, I want to say good morning, good after. What is it, the afternoon or morning? It's whatever it is. It is afternoon. Uh, Amnon, hello. Hello. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. How good, you? I'm good, and everything is good here and sunny in North Carolina, so we're glad for that. We have a beautiful day in the neighborhood, right? Yep. And so Amnon is our producer, and he's going to be taking care of all of the cool things that go on behind the scenes. And I just wanted to let you all know that you are more than welcome any time during the show to call in. Jot this number down if you're at a landline or cell phone, 919-518-9773. You can Skype in with us at computers, that's plural, the number two, voice, anytime you want. And also, we have a chat that you are more than welcome to partake in. If you go underneath the video that you're watching now, You'll see a little line. It says nickname. Put any name you like in there and uh, come into the chat. And you can ask questions. You can engage with the other people that are in there. So today I'm really excited to be having the conversation that we're going to be having. Because it's not one that, you know, sometimes we like to talk about, we like to think about. But it is an important conversation. And I'd like to welcome my guest today, Dr. Eric Morris. Thank you. It's nice to have you. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. And Dr. Morse is an addiction and sports psychiatrist, and we actually work together. I actually um, have an office in Dr. Morse's practice, psychiatry practice, and I'm really honored to be here, to be there. So I'm really excited to have him here because we're going to be talking about addiction and what's, you know, what's more than that. We're going to be talking about spirituality and all kinds of things. So thank you for being here. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks so for So what is addiction, really? I think uh, addiction is a, is a brain disease. I think a lot of people think that it's, you know, a moral failing. Um, but I believe that addiction is a, you know, very predictable neurochemical disease. It's often genetic. It usually runs in families. Um, obviously, the, the choice to use that very first time, sometimes that's in our control, sometimes that's not in our control, especially if someone is prescribed medications by their physician and they're not warned about how habit-forming the medication can be, um, then they can be in a situation where they're using a substance and a switch just turns on in their brain that really makes them need that substance, um, where they don't feel normal without it. And so oftentimes it's not a, a choice to use at that point. Um, they feel like they have to to use a substance in order to feel normal, not even to get high. So when you say that a switch in the brain, so do we all have that possibility of that happening, or so certain people are more uh, predisposed to that than yes. others? I think there's there's definitely a genetic predisposition. I think if if you're using a substance long enough, 
um, you become physiologically dependent on that substance. Um, so you, you may not have any predisposition, but if you're using it often enough for a long enough period of time, you're going to see that, that you get physiologically dependent on it. And it may, be, it may turn into a psychological dependence as well. Um, but uh, there's no question that some of that, that switch can be more of a, you know, a finer switch or more, you know, triggered switch for, for folks who have the genetic predisposition. Mm -hmm. So, so is it, um, you know, I, I guess, do you see a lot of families with the same? Yes, I see a lot of families. Um, it's, uh, oftentimes it's, you know, it's multi-generational, it's, mm -hmm. it's siblings. Um, once I can get one of their family members clean and sober and functioning at a much higher level, the rest of the family sees the um, success that that one family member is having, and so they refer their other loved ones in to see me or one of my practice partners. Mm -hmm. um, I, won't, I won't necessarily see a spouse um, at the benefit of probiotics at the same time if you continue to eat. Um, so I might uh, I might refer you know a spouse to one of my colleagues at Carolina Performance, but. Um, but, uh, you know, siblings I'll see, parents, children I'll see uh, very frequently. And you said something about it's a mind. What did you say? What was the word you used? Did you say something that's a mind thing? It, brain it, disease. It's a brain disease. So explain that. It is that. a brain disease. So what do you mean? Well, I mean, there's, there's neurochemical reactions to uh, any substance that we use. And then the, we can actually see structural changes in the brain. Um, so you know, using linkage studies and, and F functional MRIs, we can, we can see that there's actual brain changes, structural changes in the brain um, when someone is addicted to a substance. Um, and so it's, it's very predictable, very biologic. And so the treatment really needs, in those situations, mm -hmm. need to be, you know, medical and biologic. And then once you treat or begin treating, do you see changes in this brain disease? Yes. I mean, the, the changes that you see when people get clean and sober um, are also very predictable. Um, does, does a brain completely repair itself? Often not. And so that, that switch can be switched back on very readily. So that's why people oftentimes, you know, they'll, they'll say, you know, just one use can, can bring them back to their addiction to where it was before treatment. So, you know, you often hear about um, addiction, al alcoholism as being a soul disease. How does that relate to what you're saying? Um, you know, I, I, I think addiction is a, is a biologic disease. Um, there's no question that some of the underlying reasons that someone will use initially or continue to use may be related to um, their soul, uh, something they're missing in their lives, um, and something that oftentimes spirituality can, can assist with um, in, in, in healing. Um, but, uh, but I'm a big believer that, it is, that is a, it's a bi biological, very predictable disease. Mm -hmm. Chronic in nature. So oftentimes people think that they're going to 
do a 28-day program and be cured. Um, it, it, it can't be cured in 28 days. It can't be cured with just a detox. Treatment is usually lifelong. You know, I usually recommend in treatment that you want to get at least a year clean, sober, and stable before considering, you know, stopping treatment. Um, so it is usually a lifelong illness that requires treatment lifelong. Mm -hmm. So when you talk about life treatment, you're talking about medication, you're talking about therapy. What is in that treatment? Yeah, oftentimes, I think it depends on the substance, but often most uh, addictions require medication. The medical evidence for, for, for medication treat-assisted therapy, um, you know, ranges depending on the substance between 60 to 80 percent success rates. Um, therapy itself, 12-step um, meetings, um, you see success rates you know, between 5 and 15 percent. So as a physician, I want to practice evidence-based medicine. Um, and I think it's important that the recommendations I make are, are based on science, based on outcome measures, um, and usually medications are required. There are some substances that, that medications haven't been shown to be effective against, cocaine uh, being one, um, marijuana um, being another, that there, there may not be a medication to treat those two addictions, but there's no question for opioid addiction, which is a, a growing addiction, so that's painkillers and heroin, um, medication really is required. I think alcohol and benzodiazepine addictions, medications are extremely helpful um, and need to be used. And most physicians don't know the success rate differences. So a lot of physicians will say, just go to AA or NA. Um, but I really think that's that borders on malpractice because um, physicians are only recommending 12-step. Um, your success rate goes from about 80% down to 10 or 15% uh, according to, to medical studies. And I think if you looked at any other field of medicine, if you were recommending a treatment that has that much of a difference in outcome, um, that would probably be considered malpractice. Wow. I never even thought about it. Interesting. So f marijuana, what do you do for that? So um, marijuana has an extremely long half-life in the brain. Um, it, in your body, it has a very long half-life. usually takes about 30 days if you're using chronically um, to get out of your urine, and then to get out of your brain, it's, it's even longer. Um, in a way, that's nice because it almost self-tapers. So if you were to stop marijuana, you would still be getting marijuana in your brain for, for a significant period of time. Um, N-acetylcysteine is a uh, commonly known as NAC is the only medication or uh, it's actually an amino acid that has been shown to be somewhat effective in treating marijuana addiction. Um, but other than that, that's, that's right now, that's, that's all we have um, that seems to be effective. And the nice thing is that that's an amino acid that you can get at any you know, fancy grocery store or vitamin shop or GNC. Um, but uh, but other other than for adults, I mean, I think twelve step meetings and counseling and, and seeing a therapist um, 
is, is what's recommended. For adolescents, it's usually family therapy has mm -hmm. been shown to be the most effective treatment in, in kids and adolescents in treating uh, mm -hmm. uh, marijuana addiction, cannabis addiction. I could see that. I mean, you know, you got to have the family in there, I would think. Yeah, I think the, the more honest you are about your use, the more honest you are with your loved ones, be that family or friends, the, the better the success rate. No question about it. You need the support of everybody around you. Everybody needs to be aware and checking in with you and supporting you and answering your phone calls when you, you need someone to talk to. Um, so honesty is, is always the best policy in recovery. And when you, so in, in group, in family therapy, you're referring to the honesty about it, you know, people coming together and sharing and, and kids, teens exploring what's really going on and people yes. listening, and that's really important. It's so important, I and mean, the support there, but also the, the parents and the loved ones are also learning about enabling. Um, so oftentimes in our addictions, we have family members that mm -hmm. we can count on to, to provide us uh, the resources to, to continue our addiction. Be it money, be it gifts um, that we can then trade for drugs. Um, so a lot of the family therapy is actually helping family members with the concept of tough love. Uh, tough love is it's tough, um, but when you really love someone, you're not going to support their addiction. You're not going to give them what they need, other than supporting their recovery. So. You know, I, most of the families that I work with, the loved ones are, are maybe paying for their treatment, but they're not paying for their, for their recreational drug. Anymore. Anymore. And that's one of the things yeah. we work on. That's a big deal. It is a big deal. It's, it's not easy because oftentimes the, the person who's suffering with the addiction is very adept at pulling on heartstrings, mm -hmm. um, saying that they you know, someone stole their phone or, you know, someone, uh, you know, robbed them or, or something that, that, that really makes you want to help that loved one. But, um, but oftentimes supplying them with that, that extra money or that extra uh, item, expensive item, then is turned in for drugs. Mm -hmm. And uh, I've seen it time and time again. Hmm. Very interesting. This is so interesting. I mean, I really, because there's so many things you just, it's so pervasive and it's so around us, all of this stuff. And I, get, and I have some questions on the chat that I want to ask you, but I think it's important to clarify, you know, we talked about what is an addiction, but really, is an addiction just having a couple of beers at night, every night? I mean, what does it look like? And I want, yeah, did you? Yeah, and no, I, I, think, I think that's an excellent question. Um, is my one or two glasses of wine at night or a beer, is that an addiction? I think oftentimes what I'll do in those situations when, when folks ask me that is, is say, well, let's see if you can give it up. Let's, let's see if you can go a week without that substance. Um, and if you can, then you're probably not addicted. Um, if you can't, then I think we have to take a closer look at it and, and consider... Um, alternatives so so under the uh, umbrella of addiction you would have alcohol you would have drugs you would have cigarettes yes what else would you have sex yes uh, any 
any repeated behavior can be an addiction. So I see a lot of sex addiction. I see a lot of internet addiction. You know, Facebook can be addictive. Um, I see food addiction. Um, you know, so there, there, there are uh, plenty of behaviors that if, if you're doing something repeatedly and it's taking over other aspects of your mm -hmm. life, so it's affecting your personal life, it's affecting your work life, um, then that can be considered an addiction and can respond very, very nicely to treatment. What's, what's a treatment for Facebook? So, um, you know, obviously one of the, th the things you want to do is, is try to, f the first part of, of treating any addiction is just awareness. Mm -hmm. So trying to set limits um, trying to, you know, specify what half hour or what hour you're going to use mm -hmm. to be on Facebook and then setting clear limits. Um, for a lot of my folks, they've tried that um, on their own or they try that with me in, in sessions and they're not able to stick with what they need to stick with. And so I find that naltrexone, which is a, an opioid antagonist, it's a medication, it's generic, it's very inexpensive. Um, is extremely effective in treating non-substance addictions. So gambling, sex addiction, um, internet addiction. It, extremely effective in reducing cravings. Um, so it, it binds to the mu receptor in our brains and, and really reduces the uh, euphoric response to stimuli that uh, things that we do that um, normally gives us a sense of calm and peace. Um, extremely effective. It's, it's often not prescribed. Most physicians aren't aware of the medication, but um, the studies on it are, are very strong. And um, there's not, you know, people aren't studying it right now because it's gone generic. So there's no money to be made, and mm -hmm. uh, especially oral naltrexone. Um, there is a my Life Recovery Centers in, in Raleigh just opened about a year ago that's doing naltrexone implants, and they have a, a patent on naltrexone in the implant form. It's good for six months to a year and extremely effective in treating opioid addiction and alcohol addiction and probably would be extremely effective in treating other behavioral addictions. Um, but right now they're just limiting it to uh, alcohol and opioids right now, the clinic is. Well, I want to ask you something about what you said about the euphoric, but I want to um, answer some of this first. So somebody on here said she's heard that there is something called an ACE, A, a score, which is adverse childhood experiences. She's wondering if addiction cases are more likely to be genetic or the result of lifestyle experiences, which then cause the gene to be expressed. I think that's an excellent question. Most people, most people think that addiction is, the number one risk factor to develop an addiction is genetics. It's actually number two. The, the primary risk factor to develop an addiction is age of first use. So our brains are, in childhood and even up to the mid-20s, are still, our neurons are still pruning itself. And the younger you are when you first get a taste for a substance, the more likely you are to get addicted to it. And most of the folks I've 
been working with have tried that substance in their early teens, so 11, 12, 13. And because their brains are, are still forming, um, it becomes more hardwired in the brain. And um, there's no question that that then becomes much more difficult to treat. Um, trauma, you know, whether it's physical, sexual, emotional, um, is probably one of the leading causes for a young teen to try a substance. They, they use it to escape their reality uh, very often. And uh, I think it becomes more hardwired in the brain um, when it's effective in treating the trauma. Uh, and so I think, I think that that is a, uh, and the studies have shown that that is um, a very common co-occurring illness that also requires treatment. So there needs to be trauma recovery work done. A lot of trauma specialists, though, won't work with you if you're actively using substances. So the treatment often has to go hand in hand because it's hard to get into re recovery if you're still experiencing trauma and re-experiencing trauma. Um, but then it's also difficult to have trauma recovery if you're still actively using substances because the trauma is not being reworked in a different part of your brain. So oftentimes re recovery from, from post-traumatic stress disorder and an addiction have to, to happen at the same time. And that, honestly, that makes so much sense because it becomes part of their norm. Yes. Right? So, if it, I mean, it just becomes part of, it's all you know. Absolutely. And that leads me into what you, you were talking about, a feeling of uh, being euphoric. So, let's say with Facebook or any of these, these types of addictions, you are addicted to feeling euphoric from the experience of being on, uh, you know, the, the rush, the adrenaline rush, so to speak, yes. right? So, but at a certain point, once you've done this addiction, once you're involved, you're active in the addiction, do you bypass the feeling of being euphoric or having an adrenaline rush? And then you don't, then that's not even there anymore, I would think, right? Correct. Then what? So, right. So then you're just using or you're, doing a behavior just to feel normal. And that's most of the folks that I work with is, is the euphoria, euphorogenic benefit of, of doing that thing or using that substance wears off. But when I stop doing it, I go into withdrawal. Mm -hmm. So I go into Facebook withdrawal. And I, I can physiologically be sick. And so I need to check my Facebook because I have this constant craving uh, to know what has taken place since the last time I've logged on. And so there's the, there is, you, you know, you can, you can start sweating, you can start feeling sick to your stomach, you can start shaking. I mean, the physiologic uh, response to even a behavioral addiction is, can be very impressive and compelling. That makes somebody then do what they didn't want to do, and that's get back onto Facebook. Um, so that, that's, that's why. But I think you're right. I think the euphorogenic effects wears off pretty early in the addiction. It's just like when you drink too much. I mean, I, I mean, I'll have a drink here or there, right? So I drink 
but if I if I drink over my amount, I drink past the part that felt good. Yes. Right? And I, that's all, the only way I can associate it, right? Right. As a person who I don't, I mean, I might, I mean, I'm, I'm a busy person. I love looking at my email. I could easily think of being addicted to email. I don't know if I could put my phone down for a week. If you asked me to do I that, I don't know what I would do. <laughs> You'd have to go on vacation probably, right? Vacation? Yeah. Are you serious? Don't they have wireless there? Are you, Even well, a boat you might has be, wireless. You may be a workaholic then. That's, you can't take vacation. I struggle with that myself. You can't take vacation. You may be a workaholic. Oh my goodness! Well, I'm, I work with the right person though <laughs> to help me there. Help me, Doctor Morse. <laughs> I mean, but really, did you ever think in your in medical school and when you went through all of your training, did you ever think that the addiction would go into the kinds of things you're working with? No, I mean, I'm not a, a high tech person at all. Uh, still not, and uh, and I think the the immediacy of what we is, for my folks who are addicted to like internet porn, I mean, you can see exactly what you're thinking about seeing within a few seconds mm -hmm. on the internet. I mean, things that are bizarre that you wouldn't even think of suddenly is, you know, on your screen, on your phone or, or, or your iPad or your, or your laptop within a few seconds. And so that immediacy mm -hmm. of getting what you want when you want it, um, I, I just can't, no one could have anticipated that. And we're seeing, you know, a younger generation, um, you know, three-year-olds are getting on their iPads and can look at whatever they want to look at and how that's going to change their brains and how pervasive will addiction be 20 years from now. There's no way to know. It's, it's some scary stuff. That is scary. And the, scare, the other scary thing that just hit me is how addicted our society is becoming. Yes. No, there's no question that everything is, pretty much every addiction is on the rise. On the rise. Yes. Any age group, any yes. gender, wherever, country, doesn't matter. Yes. Uh, socioeconomic status, race, age, gender. It, 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 looking at the, you know, the epidemi epidemiology, it's, it's, it's every, everybody everybody the increase of addictions are is affecting everybody you know it's so it's crazy cuz you don't you know we don't think about these like we're talking about we don't think about certain things being so i mean coffee i mean how many people are addicted to coffee for Pete's sakes right and you don't think about that as being bad right and there's some studies that show that that drinking one cup of coffee a day might reduce certain diseases right. um, but you know do you need the brand that you need and do you need to pay you know the five dollars to Starbucks every day and that five dollars could go to something maybe a little more productive um, you know, it's it's amazing and how do you feel when you listen to you know when you hear about McDonald's french fries or Wendy's french fries that have whatever they have in them to cause us to eat more french fries. Right. What do you think about that? Yeah, our food science, you know, to make things more addictive, obviously there's there's like 30 substances that are added to cigarettes to make them more addictive. Um, yeah, we're using science and our knowledge of addiction to actually sell things. Um, and we're taking advantage of, you know, our propensity to become addicted. 
it's 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 unethical. It's unethical. Uh, there's no question, but there's a lot of money to be made in it, and that I think people can be addicted to making money, and I think that people can justify um, using science and mm -hmm. and perverse ways in order in order to satisfy their own addictions. So it's just it's, the whole landscape is changing, isn't it? Yes. So here's another question. Um, Chris wants to know, what does Dr. Morse think about the importance of addicts asking for forgiveness from those they've hurt as a, as a result of their behaviors and choices? That's an important step, and it's usually tied into the, the fourth and fifth step of uh, in 12-step in recovery. Um, it is one of the more challenging things that, that some of um, my patients have to deal with. And oftentimes it triggers them to, to relapse. Um, but I think it's, it's essential um, that folks uh, take an inventory, apologize for the things that they've done in order to, to move past it. Um, they, they really do have to do it. And it's, it's one of the most challenging parts of recovery. Um, it's, it's painful to go through that process. It's often painful for the person you have to apologize to. Um, and then, you know, oftentimes, though, we have people guiding them in that process. So you have a sponsor, uh, you have a therapist, you have an addiction psychiatrist that, to help you and decide how to do it, uh, when's the best time to do it, you know, if you should do it at all. There's certain folks that are going to be injured in the process um, where maybe it's, you know, not in their benefit. And, and I think that that's an important um, aspect to think about, is am I doing this just for myself, or am I also doing this for my loved one? Mm -hmm. um, and if it's just for yourself, then it, maybe it doesn't need to even be done. Um, but I think it's, a, it's an important step in recovery, no question about it. And I'm sure it's something that, you, that would be somewhat analyzed during therapy because if yes. it's not done in the for the right reasons and for the right, you know, then it's not th correct. may not necessarily be done and, and serve anybody's purpose. In fact, it could work, it could against boomerang them. and work yeah. against people. So that's an important aspect of the therapy. So when somebody is looking for a psychiatrist or a therapist, wh who do they look for? Well, I think you want to have somebody who has experience. Um, so somebody who is licensed, um, I think, is important. So for therapists, uh, it's often, the in North Carolina anyway, it's, it's somebody who is certified in addiction. So that would be a LCAS, Licensed Clinical Addiction Specialist. So you might want to look for those initials behind someone's name. Um, but if you've got a PhD, you know, an LCSW, a LPC, but they still have a good amount of experience, they've worked in, you know, uh, a recovery center of some sort in the past and they've got a lot of experience, then I think that's absolutely fine. And for psychiatrists, you want, again, you, you want some board certified in addiction psychiatry, um, and th but that's very hard to find. Um, but if you can find a, a psychiatrist that, that has experience in treating addiction, um, that's also hard to find. Um, why is that hard to find? Why do, why do 
people don't go into it? Why is it hard to find? So most most um, psychiatrists uh, don't treat addiction. Um, so when I was a resident um, at UNC back in the late 90s, um, at 2 in the morning, 3 in the morning, uh, the only folks that would usually wake me up and and need my assistance at, at, at a strange hour were folks who were suffering with addiction. And so there was a lot of what we call counter-transference. So that's my feelings as a, as a psychiatrist towards my patient um, or the reaction of the patient to me. Um, and so I, I, I actually did not like working with folks who suffered with addiction early on in my career, and I needed to go get extra training to help me with it. And um, once I had the, the proper training and realized that addiction is a brain disease, not a, a moral failing, um, then I had a better understanding of it and had uh, more sympathy and empathy. And um, But I, I don't think that that is something that the vast majority of psychiatrists have. Most psychiatrists will actually screen out addiction. So if you're suffering with some sort of addiction and you mention that before you schedule an appointment, oftentimes they'll say, I can't help you, that's not my specialty. Why don't you see somebody with more addiction experience? Um, and it's because they're not trained in, in how to do it. I, in the four years that I had in my psychiatry residency, I had one hour, one hour lecture on addiction, and that was the biology, the brain biology of addiction. I had one hour of training, and then it wasn't enough, and obviously, and, and that's why I, I knew it was a hole in my knowledge knowledge base, and I knew I needed to do an addiction fellowship to, to solidify my knowledge on, on addiction. Well, to begin, so I have a couple of questions about this. So to begin with, what drew you to addiction anyway? To be honest, what drew me to addiction was I knew I wanted to be a sports psychiatrist. I enjoy athletics, um, and I, I work for NC State and United States Olympic team, and um, I've worked with a number of professional teams and, and leagues, and I love the work. But I knew that that addiction was a main reason why a professional league or team would want to hire a psychiatrist. Um, so to make myself a more marketable sports psychiatrist, I knew I needed to be a certified addiction psychiatrist. Mm -hmm. um, but in the process of doing my addiction fellowship, I fell in love with treating addiction. Um, so as much as I enjoy treating athletes, um, I also enjoy treating folks who suffer with addiction. You fell in love with it. That's such an interesting way to say. So what, can you explain that some? What do you mean? When I that? fell in love with it, um, yeah. I, I just enjoy what I do. Um, it is very rewarding work. Uh, I get more thank yous from my patients, I think, than than any other physician. Uh, I really feel like I saved lives. Um, I, I just love the work that I do. I feel very passionate about it. I, I uh, am growing more clinics, the Morse clinics. Um, so I have three opioid treatment programs, one in Clayton, one in Henderson, and one in Siler City. And I'm in the process of opening three more this year. So I'm opening one in North Raleigh, one in 
Hillsboro, and one in Zebulon. And I, and I plan on growing more in 2017 as well. Uh, I just love the work. I love helping people. And um, I, I've just fallen in love with the work. You know, I, I just want to take a side note here because this is, you know, so interesting, a conversation, because in so many ways it's so hard for many of us to understand, you know, the process that somebody goes through that's, you know, addicted or and, – and the family members. There's so much, you know, it, it really – when they say sometimes that, you know, in, in AA that it's a, it's a disease of the family, it really is. Everybody gets involved. And, and I guess I'm so honored, I'm going to say this, to be working with Dr. Morris in multiple ways because the, the fact that somebody could care so much day in and day out to work in an area that you do get thank you, but it is not an easy task. It is not some you know, you don't just give somebody a pill and they feel better. This is an ongoing practice. It's an ongoing it's ongoing work, and I, I don't know. I guess you, 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 you maybe you, you help. You know, there's more people that um, don't recover than do recover. Is there a, the you, the I, rate I of recovery? I think that's probably true. A, a very small percentage of folks who suffer with addiction actually try to get treatment. Mm -hmm. You know, and it's. Uh, I think for opioid addiction, it's uh, the last study I saw was about 11% of folks who are uh, addicted to opiates are in treatment. Mm -hmm. So, and you look at something like hypertension, it's 80, 85%. You know, if you look at diabetes, it's pretty close to 90%. Mm -hmm. And yet, this brain disease has such a strong stigma against it going up against it. It's not just the patients, it's also the providers. And, right? and the culture. The culture. The, so um, doctors don't want to ask about it because they don't know how to treat it. They'll ask about symptoms of hypertension or diabetes, but they're not going to ask questions about addiction because they don't know how to handle it. They haven't been trained mm -hmm. on how to handle it. Mm -hmm. um, and so we all want to take a blind eye to it. Um, it's, it's uh, yeah, I think you're right. I think the vast majority of, of folks who suffer with addiction never get treatment. So you'd really have to be an advocate. Yes. In this, in this domain of psychiatry, you really have to be an advocate. It's not something that you you know you just you just do you just be a psychiatrist and you but, but but you really have to be an advocate because it, it it's so deep and it's so pervasive that there's so you really have to you really have to keep caring you can't yes you have to you have it's a it's usually a lifelong disease but for the for the doctor for the psychiatrist yeah and I think that if you're not well trained. Um, most of the addiction psychiatrists that I know burn out. They, they stop doing the work. Mm -hmm. And it's because they take it home with them. Uh, it's because they often get tired of being lied to. 
Right, so um, it can't be about your ego yes. as a psychiatrist. You can't be, it's not a numbers game. It's a lifelong, um, it's a lifelong for the patient, but it's also lifelong for the life. Do you stay with people yes. that long? So I opened my practice at Carolina Performance in 2006. I have, I have a good number of patients that are still with me in 2006. They're all in recovery. Um, and they want to stay there. And so they, they may not see me, you know, very frequently, but they're engaged. They continue to remain engaged in treatment because they know if they don't, they could relapse. Um, and, and they stay with you. And they and stay with me. And you stay with them. Yes. We stay together. You stay together. See, it's not so, it's not like you just see somebody once in a while and you're done. It's very right. different than that. Yes. And so you, I could so understand why some doctors don't do it yeah um it is it is challenging work but i think you also have to take the you have to have the right mindset you have to realize that it's a chronic disease and i don't i don't think most physicians see it that way i think that's the problem is they see it as a, a curable um or they want power right and they want curable psychiatry right. in other words they want things to come to them that they know they can cure yes. and, and move on. This yeah. is not that. Correct. I never thought about it like that yeah. before. That's great. That's really... So here's another question. Can you give us a stat on how, on how much addiction costs our country on a yearly basis in terms of lost wages, medical issues, etc.? It's in the billions. I mean, I think it's, I think it's pretty close to $100 billion. The last time I looked at uh, a study that looked at that, um, and so it's it's much cheaper to treat addiction. Uh, one of the biggest expenditures that we have is is our is our uh, penal system, right? So we've got a lot of people in jail and prison instead of on maintenance therapy for for addiction, um, and we're spending you know sixty thousand dollars a year to keep someone in in jail or prison instead of a few hundred dollars. For medicine, and they instead of being a, a burden to our right. system, they could be contributing and, and paying taxes, and, um, and that's ninety nine percent of the folks I'm working with are paying their taxes. Kids too. I mean, not just kids paying their taxes, but right. the, the same type of philosophy extended to our children because look where they end up. Exactly. So listen, I just want to remind everybody out there, I haven't done this in a while because I've been so engrossed, but if you would like to call in, please feel free to do that. If you're on Blab, you're welcome to call into the studio as well, 919-518-9773. You can communicate with us also on Skype computers, that's plural, the number 2K voice. And you also, I just want to remind you, you can um, join us on our uh, chat. You can put your name next to underneath our video on our website and come in there as well and if you're on um, Blab please feel free to join us so what have we based on your knowledge and we've been covering a lot of different ground here what would what have we not spoken about when it when it comes to addiction um, just the I think I've touched on it the importance of, of medicine um, in treating recoveries, the, the difference in, in outcome measures for maintenance therapy. Um, a lot of money is spent 
needlessly on uh, detox and, and rehab. You know, some of the real popular places like Sierra Tucson or Promises or in Malibu or, you know, that, that, that claim to have a, a very high success rates, they, they don't. Um, and, you know, they cost $30,000 for a 30-day stay. That's like $1,000 a day. Um, that is not money well spent. Um, that, that maintenance therapy uh, is the way to go. So for opioid addiction, that's naltrexone, methadone, or buprenorphine. For alcohol addiction, benzodiazepine addiction, oftentimes that's antabuse, that's uh, acamprosate, um, or naltrexone. Um, so, I mean, those medications are often uh, offered to folks who suffer with addiction at, at rates of around 1% to 2% by medical professionals. So you, believe, you think that if somebody as a, you know, has the option, they don't, as opposed to going to those residents, they can go on a, a program that you would be offering, they would go to therapy, they could right. at the same time going to AA, taking an art class, I mean, there are things that people can do. Yes. That would that would be a good um, a, a good uh, therapy system for them to. Yeah, a good, good treatment plan. Treatment plan. Yes, and you don't have to, you know, go away from your family for thirty days. I mean, you can still function at a high high level, and most of most of the folks I see are still functioning. They still have jobs. They don't want to lose their job. Um, and so there, there are things we can do uh, that are extremely effective that don't require, you know, a 28-day stay somewhere. Which isn't enough state, anyway. Which is not effective. It's not, not enough Not effective anyway. and really usually a waste of money. And these treatment centers are not practicing evidence-based medicine either. So I think it's almost criminal what these treatment centers are doing, um, that they're not offering uh, medication-assisted treatment uh, to the people who are there. Why? Because they want them to relapse and they want them to come back and pay the money again. Um, I, I, I believe that it's an industry that is um, tainted. Mm -hmm. It feeds on itself. There's no question. That, uh, yeah, because 30 days, that's nothing. How yeah. can you, that's like, how can you, you've been, you've been addicted for however yeah. many years you're going to go somewhere for 30 days and be able to... And most of these treatment centers, I could understand, <laughs> excuse me, if they, um, a lot of them don't set you up with aftercare. Well, we... I mean, it's, it's unbelievable. Um, so, you know, you're spending all this money, and when your stay is over and you've paid for as much as, as they want you to pay for... Um, they, they send you home with oftentimes no real good plan. Um, and then you're back in the same environment with the same stressors uh, without, without, oftentimes without the tools and, and the, the medical blockage that you need um, so that you don't use. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I'm, I'm hoping that 
you know, insurance companies, Medicaid, Medicare, that they're looking at outcome measures and they're, they're really insisting that, um, that these treatment centers practice evidence-based medicine. But oftentimes they don't even have physicians. So there's, there's, no, uh, there's no medical, they can, they can get away with it because they don't have you know, medical providers even at their treatment centers. Mm-hmm. Well, what about centers that, like, six months or outward bound or any of those kinds of things? You know, I think they, uh, so some of the wilderness trainings and those sorts of things have been shown to be effective in adolescents and, and in adults. Um, I think it's, they're more effective in substances like uh, cocaine and marijuana where there isn't, you know, strong medical interventions. But still, they, so it's still, but it's still a lifelong Right. And it's, it's a lifelong disease it's that, lifelong that disease. you need to have some sort of aftercare set up when you leave those programs. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, they don't work. I mean, I, I just can't even see them. They just, they look nice, but they, it's no way they can work. Right. And if they're not practicing evidence-based medicine, they probably don't work. And so when I get calls, I often, you know, almost every day, I get calls from treatment centers from across the country asking me to refer patients to them. And sometimes they'll even fly somebody in and, and bring a lunch. Um, and if they, if, they don't, if they don't prescribe, um, you know, anti-abuse, naltrexone, or a campersate for alcohol or benzo addiction, and they don't prescribe buprenorphine or methadone or naltrexone for for opioid addiction, then I'm, I usually don't even take their calls or, or, you know, take their information down because that's, that's not a treatment center that I would send anybody to because they're clearly not practicing proper addiction medicine. And if you have a choice with someone, you, I mean, you're, you don't always like to prescribe medication. I mean, you, you don't want people, you don't right. always want to prescribe medication. If you don't have right. to, right? I mean, it is You're it is somewhat pusher. of a yeah, it's somewhat of a last resort, um, but I still want to follow evidence-based practice, um, and most of the times, most of my patients have tried without medicine. They've already gone through treatment centers, they've already been to twelve-step meetings, um, and it hasn't worked. So usually, by the time they come and see me, it's it's four meds, mm-hmm. um, and and then they have success. I would say, you know, my success rates are probably around ninety percent. That's that's a lot. Yeah, isn't it, it is. It is success. That's extremely successful. But that's that's probably the pretty close to the national mm-hmm. average. You know, I mean, that's. Um, I think with my training, I am a little special, but not tremendously special. A little special, in what way? And my success rates are oh, might be a, a, little a little higher than average because of the training. Because of the training and experience that I have, but I think you know if you see any physician with addiction expertise who are prescribing medication to treat addiction, you're going to come pretty close to that success rate. And so, are you noticing anything as far as more heavily with men, women, anything? Are you seeing any trends in that regard? So addictions do occur slightly more frequently in men, but it's often uh, the women who on a higher percentage are coming in for treatment. And it's often because they have, uh, you know, they're the primary caregiver. 
Um, and so because they have more to lose and more people relying on them, they're more motivated to get clean and sober than the men are, mm-hmm. in my experience. So are do you advocate for these, for, I mean, are you advocating? Are you speaking around? What Do you do a lot of that kind of work as well? Yes, absolutely. I, I'm fortunate I've been um, just named to the Governor's Commission on Mental Health and Substance Abuse, so I, I realize that um, I need to be more politically active. I mean, to really have a, a change, you know, statewide, I need, I need to lead um, politically. Um, but I also speak at conferences uh, very regularly, usually at least once, one a month, where I'm speaking to some field of medicine, um, trying to educate uh, physicians on the front line to um, to prescribe medications that are effective in treating addiction and stop prescribing medications that aren't effective in treating addiction. And what about physicians just not prescribing medication for addictions and sending them to somebody who knows really how to handle that? Yeah. I mean, that really bothers me when I see, just in any kind of therapeutic, you know, somebody who needs some kind of therapy is getting prescribed medication from a regular MD yes. with no nothing, just medication. Right. That really bothers me. Yes. Because there's nothing there. It's no different than going to a 30-day program and coming out with nothing. Right. That really bothers me. That, that I think, um, I think at least that physician is trying. Okay. So at I'll least they're screening. Okay. At least they're asking questions. To me, well. you're right. That's, that's less than ideal, but that's still at least one step in the right direction. So what, will you, what, do, you want ther- what do you want medical doctors to do? What's the first step? Is it in knowing what addiction looks like? Yeah, and screening for it. Okay. Then that that simply is asking, have you, you know, what is your alcohol consumption like? Okay. You know, what is your cigarette smoking like? What are recreational drug use like? If you're not asking that very simple question, and oftentimes it's on a form somewhere, um, but, but sometimes physicians will remove that from their forms because they don't know how to handle the the answer. the answer, if it's yes, I am, I have a problem, or I'm using, and I don't think I have a problem, um, they don't know what to do with the what's next, okay. um, and that's that's where I come in and try to educate, uh, you know, physicians on and nurse practitioners and physician assistants on on what to do next. Okay, so that's your role there, and then as far as on the governor's commission and speaking out and being more. Of a, taking more on there, what's going to be your thing? I think you know it. It comes to funding, you know, and I think we need to fund treatments that have evidence behind it, and we need to stop funding treatments that don't have evidence behind it. And I think that's that's going to be my role on the commission. Is is um, you know we got to put our money where the effectiveness is. Mm-hmm. Cool. Okay, so now, tell everyone. I mean, and I know you're not you're not taking any more patients, but the practices. Yes. So, just as a little bit, can you tell everybody, and and understand that we're in North Carolina, but you can. But I'm. But I guess yes. Dr. Morris can fill you in on if you're somewhere else, what you do. In well, North- I think if you're outside the Raleigh area. 
I mean, I think you can literally Google, you put in board certified addiction psychiatrist into Google in your town. Um, that's probably the best way to find, you know, an addiction psychiatrist. There's also the AAAP website, which is AAAP.org, um, which is uh, the American Academy for Addiction Psychiatry. Um, and that they have a, you know, find a doc, um, you know, server uh, that, that would be very helpful. Um, but if you are in the Raleigh area, uh, Carolina Performance, we actually have eight addiction psychiatrists um, as well as addiction counselors uh, who are very effective in treating addiction. And uh, our website's carolinaperformance.net. Our phone number is 919-676-9699. Um, and I think that's a great place to start at the very least. Um, I mean, I, it's true that my practice is pretty full. And so it's, it's hard for me to, at this point, take on too many new patients. So oftentimes, um, I'm, I'm still happy to talk to people and find the right fit for them. So yes. I still have time to, if you leave me a message, either an email or a voicemail, I will respond and I will try to find the best program for you or person for you. Um, I'm always happy to do that. I'm very dedicated to helping people. No question, because I have reached, people have contacted me, and um, this is not my, I mean, I, I am there as a business and life, as a life coach, business coach, but I certainly have contacted Dr. Morris in the past, and I will say that it's really, I mean, this is, and I tell this to people all the time, to be able to um, see that psychiatrists can have a heart is, is huge when you're talking about addictions. I mean, because it is not, like we've been saying, it is not black and white. It is not an easy field to, it's not easy to help people with addictions. And the people that I work with have a heart. I mean, they really care about the people that they're working with. So I, it's really phenomenal. And I really, if, and, and I would say if you are, if you are, we haven't even talked about being a family member because that's a whole nother yes. thing, and we didn't touch upon that at all. We didn't. And that's a big deal. Yes. You'll have to have me back. I'm good. Will you come back? I will come okay. back. Okay. You will come back, and we're just going to talk about family. Family. How to, how to help your loved one who's, who you think might, may be suffering with an addiction. Yeah. That's a big deal. So we're going to do that. So if, if you do have a family member, if you are somebody... You know, one of the things that I think you got from today, I'm sure you got a lot, is that there's hope. Yes. There's hope. You, you know, you can get well, right? Absolutely. No question that treatment works. The treatment absolutely works. So don't listen to anybody else. Don't look at anybody else. Don't listen to anybody else that's not getting help. If you want help, you can get help. And if you're questioning it and you need somebody to give you some support, you know, connect with Dr. Morris. Reach out to me. I'll connect with you, Dr. Morris. I'm Marilyn at MarilynShannon.com. And so I want to thank you. Oh, thank you. you. You really you did a great job, and I appreciate it so much all that you've shared and the light that you have shown on this dark area because it really is, and it is growing. Yes. So it's something that we all really want to be aware of because it's 
it's in so many nooks and crannies and it can uh, pop up with so many, I mean, Facebook for Pete's sakes, right? Uh, email, you know, all these things. So tune in again next week. We'll be back again, but we will have Dr. Morse coming. We're going to talk about family. So thank you so much. Thank you. Did, did we get the website? Yeah, carolinaperformance. Dot, yeah. And if you have any questions, just contact me at Marilyn at MarilynShannon.com. And with that, everyone, have a wonderful day. I'll see you next week. Bye. You're tuned to the Nissan Communications Network. Our weekly lineup of call-in programs includes Computers 2K Now with Omnon Nissan, My Life, My Will with Gisela DiCarlo, The Tanya Love Show, Help Then with Debbie Brooke, Breaking Free with Marilyn Shannon, Triangle Be Well with Howard Jacobson, Lunch and Learn with Rabbi Yisrael Cutler, Lessons of Vietnam with NCVVI members, Parent Dome with Ryan Miller, Current Affairs with Amnon Nissan. And if you tuned in too late, you can always watch each program in its entirety or download an MP3 audio file of it in the archives section on nissancommunications.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel, follow us on Twitter, and like us on Facebook. Sponsored by Atomos.com, makers of quality video recorders and converters, CarolinaApparel.com, and DeltaForce.net.